0: Hi, I am Martin. If you see it, I hear it. If you do it, I see it. And if it matters, I talk about it on Moments That Matter with Martin. Let's get talking. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am your host Martin Agonwa. Today I'll be chatting with the managing partner Watts Inc Marketing Media and Public Relations Consulting and former president of the UK's Chartered Institute of Public Relations, Stephen Wardington. Over the years, Stephen has led the campaign to instill higher levels of professionalism in the public relations profession and create better synergy between public relations practice and education. We'll be discussing everything public relations today. It's been quite a trying period for everyone on account of the COVID-19 pandemic but finally it seems like the light at the end of the tunnel is within eyesight due to the vaccine rollout. What would you say are the lessons you've learned about society in the course of this pandemic?
1: So many I was very fortunate to do a piece of work in the middle of last year so as we started to emerge from the first lockdown in the UK, where I worked with the Government Communication Service and professional associations in the UK to look at the impact of COVID-19 on public relations practice. And that report ended up being published in August or September. But through that, I was fortunate to spend, six weeks reading all the contemporary literature As we went into lockdown and the life experiences of people during lockdown, both from their personal experiences, but but also professional, we published that report and you know there were a number of pieces of lessons from that public relations generally has had a good crisis in that it has been elevated and recognized as a management function granted there are aspects of society that have had a really really hard time and have been really challenged so anybody in culture events sports working in the communication sphere in those sectors has probably been on furlough and had a a tough time equally travel and hospitality So the figures speak for themselves of the impact on on the economy. But then from a professional communicating point of view, as organisations have gone into lockdown and had to go virtual, they've relied on professional communicators, PR people, to help. Understand the stakeholder landscape as it's changed, and particularly from an an internal point of view, help leaders navigate that switch as literally every organization has, has become virtual. And I think as we emerge from lockdown, there's going to be some sort of hybrid future that blends the best of both. We've seen communications within an organization become porous. So, you know, because of the need for a pace to communication. The same messages have been told internally as there were externally. There's been, been some real innovation there. Uh, and then, you know, I think we've seen the power of networks, but also power, some absolute examples of best practice through the work of professional communicators. So you now walls have been knocked down. Politics have been removed through the crisis as the need for communicators to operate at pace, but also do the best that they can it's been really really hard but a period of terrific learning for our profession we
0: come out of it incredibly well interesting points you make there and we're going to talk more about the impact covid has had on pro and comms in january you're on the panel of a prca event where you shared a lot of optimism as to how society the economy was going to revamp post-covid do the numbers still point in that direction
1: uh, yeah, they do. But it's really interesting you raise this because I had this conversation with my wife this morning. We're thinking about, you know, there is definitely a wave of optimism through our professional networks, through our personal networks. And that's kind of inevitable as we're released from lockdown in England. Outdoor hospitality, sporting reopened, shops reopened. It inevitably creates a euphoria. The government is firmly focused and will have to focus coming out of lockdown on recovery and has already set about reviving its grand strategies around AI, around infrastructure and such like, and that's going to be important. What really concerns me in the conversation I was having this morning is that inevitably is going to be short-lived. It will last six to 12 months where we get this sort of wave of recovery. And then there has to be, there will have to be interventions by the government to to recover all the money that's been spent. You know, and I can only second, second guess economic policy, but I'm guessing taxation will be increased. Yes, while we might be in a strong position now and full of optimism,
0: 12 to 18 months is going to be tough. Okay, you had already started on communications and public relations becoming a management function. Could see the impact COVID nineteen has had on that sector. Recently, um, in a thought leadership article you produced, you said that public relations is a profession that seemingly refuses to learn. Could you unpack that?
1: Yeah, for sure, and it's quite straightforward actually. The premise of a profession. You've got to assume, and I'm, st- I'm working from the, the, the start point that practitioners want to optimize the value that they can create from their labor. And the best way to do that is through professional standards. And we can argue that point, but think every other profession would demonstrate that. So if you start from that premise and look at what the the characteristics of a profession are, they are some sort of barrier to entry through education. So you're studying at Leeds Beckett, you know, you'll come out with a master's qualification. That shows that you have achieved a level of competency. And frankly, you've demonstrated the intellect to study for four years and and make certain achievements, such as writing a flected piece of work and you're citation. so that's barrier to entry now it's not mandatory that you have a professional qualification to start working in public relations and there are a variety of r- routes to entry now including apprenticeship the key thing is there is some sort of recognition of the need for formal education first thing second thing is continuous professional development so a commitment to continuously learn and this strikes at the heart of the issue that public relations is the profession that fails to learn there are by the government's reckoning 90,000 public relations practitioners working across different forms of communication internal external and public affairs in the UK that's based on numbers published by the Office for National Statistics yet the low numbers of thousands sign up to some sort of professional development scheme as set out by the PRCA or the Chartered Institute of Public Relations. That's woeful. Now there are other means of pursuing continuous professional development but that number should be a lot higher. Third thing is there needs to be a means within a profession of testing competency and an adherence to ethics and within the UK that's maintained by the CIPR and the PRCA. So if you're a member of either a those organizations, you subscribe to their code of ethics. The code of ethics are displayed on websites. They're easy for anyone to understand. Any member of the public can find them and they're robustly enforced. So, big tick there. If you remember the CIPR or the PLCA, you ascribe to those standards. The next thing is the community of practice between theory and practice. Now, this has always been a challenging area of discourse in public relations. Practitioners have had limited respect for colleagues in in academia and vice versa, it has to be said. There are very few spaces for crossover of of mutual learning. And, you know, that will be completely unthinkable in any other professional sphere. So you think of things like medicine, management, finance, you know, there are robust academia, studying practice and feeding into practice. It's absolutely critical. The fifth thing is conversion. So in in most professions, there is some sort of formal training when you go from academic qualification into professional practice. It happens in finance, it happens in the law, it happens in medicine. yet we have this attitude in public relations that individuals should come out of university almost ready to practice. And it doesn't happen in any other profession. And why should it in public relations? And that relates to that fourth point, that limited respect between academia and practice. Practitioners don't see the value of academia. It's changing, though. It has to say it's been changing, you know, in the last 10 years in particular. It's also very different in other countries around the world. You look at the US and Germany, there's a much stronger
0: relationship between the two areas. What would you say is responsible for that change? What is the catalyst for that?
1: I think it's the issue of it just being called out. So there's a growing number of practitioners are active in teaching and learning. Equally, there are a growing and increasing number of people, you know, scholars uh, and teachers who are getting involved in practice. You know, and initiatives driven by the CIPR and the PRCA have been very, very helpful to promote that. Ultimately, it is by the creation of a community between those two areas that we're going to better understand each other and better learn. There's increasingly opportunity to do that as well. I think conferences like Bledcom increasingly those spaces are getting friendlier to both
0: academics and practitioners. On this particular subject matter, I'll be referring a lot to that piece that you wrote because personally, I found it really, really interesting. And I recall even making a comment on on LinkedIn at the time. There's a rider to the quote you made there that it doesn't seem to make up its mind if it's a craft, an industry, or a profession. Now you said that there seem to be a lot of changes. If you were to situate it now, what would you say public relations is right now?
1: So it's an, it's a, it's a, an infantile profession. I, it's a profession. In, <laughs> infantile. infantile. Sorry, that sounds That's <laughs> heavy. That's heavy. <laughs> uh, it's a profession in development, for sure. It's in its infancy, is what I meant to say. In that, I mentioned those five characteristics of a profession. You know, and you can see progress and action in each of those
0: areas, but it's not a standard yet.
1: And I think that's really, really important.
0: I can understand why there is that dilemma. Even when we look at those three ideas, you mentioned there craft, industry, profession. I think that there's a great deal of craftsmanship to what public relations practitioners do. There's a lot of skill sets that are employed in carrying out a PR campaign. And the body of people who do those things You can refer to them as an industry, but it's also an industry that holds itself to some certain level of ethics, standards, and that, to a reasonable extent, makes it a profession. I'd also
1: say you could apply that to law or you could apply that to finance. There's a whole load of craft type work being done in finance and also in medicine. That day-in, day-out practice, if you cut your finger, you have to go to A&E, you know, and it will be bandaged up. By a nurse now that nurse is what she's doing is a craft but she's working to professional standard we tie ourselves in knots around
0: this and i'm not sure it's helpful okay i've had a guest on the last episode of the podcast argue that a barrier to entry might mean denying public relations the advantage of diversity and creativity that it thrives on do you share that sentiment too
1: Okay, so, so my retort would be we very, very active apprenticeship scheme in public relations, which is a route into practice that anybody could take. There's routes into practice through degree and master's levels. Then there's also routes into practice through professional qualifications. All of those are open and diverse, granted. Not everybody is fortunate enough to be able to go to university. But equally, I think, through the work of the PRCA, although i Have opened up that allow for professional learning, and a compliment. The apprenticeship scheme is the absolute example. The concern is the the alternative is you know on what basis do you do you hire?
0: Alright, still discussing the synergy between education and practice. The history of public relations is in some sense tied to propaganda, whether it's church or state propaganda. In fact, it's the reason some people still refer to practitioners as spin masters. Do you still feel like the practice of PR today is far removed from the theoretical ideals that students learn in school?
1: You can trace the roots of the industry back, or a certain part of the industry back to propaganda absolutely agree. There are also certain aspects of the industry that that work in the area of propaganda. You know, if you look at the manipulation of publics around political events on Facebook, I would argue that that, particularly when it happens by foreign states, is a means of propaganda. So propaganda is alive and well, for sure. We can have an argument about whether that is recognised as a means of public relations. You know, I think it's called out for what it is by practice and recognised as such. Equally, publicists operating within public relations frequently are labelled as public relations practitioners. And, you know, there's there's a place for publicity and and publicists as part of practice. But I think it does a disservice to, you know, not recognise it as an area of practice. You know, much of the public relations industry came from media relations. We should celebrate that.
0: So now you've been involved in public relations practice for over 25 years. How much has this industry evolved within this time?
1: So every step forward in my career, every aspect of my
0: career, significant
1: change I've made in my career in public relations has been around a moment of disruption within the industry. So the first one was in 1998 when I was working in tech PR. I originally trained as an engineer, became a a technical writer and then moved into technology public relations you know the first trajectory of my career followed the boom in technology as the internet was building out so the companies I was working with the companies that were building the plumbing to to build out the internet and then the devices to plug into the the internet that was the first thing second wave was then as applications started to be built on the internet in the early noughties so 2004-2005 after the dot com bust, there was a huge energy around, you know, what what we now know as social media platforms. So that that was the second bit. And then the third bit, the shift from to apply those new types of media and networks to public relations practice, to use them to engage in a completely integrated way for the benefit of practice. You know, and along the way I've written numerous books about, you know, each of these different evolu-
0: well, the last two areas of evolution. Which of these phases have been the most interesting and challenging for you?
1: So I think the explosion, the real opportunity, the big opportunity came around 2007, 2008 for public relations practitioners when media exploded and fragmented. There was a huge boom in blogging, there was a huge boom in social networks like Twitter, Google+, there's no more, Facebook, LinkedIn. Practitioners recognise the opportunity to use these as a form of media to engage with publics uh, in the absolute broadest sense. Also, individuals use them to raise their own profile and and build their own networks. That's absolutely been the most exciting time. 2010, 2011 was an incredibly exciting time for public relations practice. You know, I I often reflect back on that time and think we were full of such optimism and hope. Uh, And to your point about propaganda, we didn't recognize at the time the opportunity for these new forms of media to be abused and used as basically for misinformation and as means of propaganda as weaponized.
0: So let's go back to 2013 a little bit. 2013 was when you were voted to be the president of the CIPR for the year 2014. What was the biggest challenge you encountered and how were you able to overcome it at the time?
1: So, organizations like the CRPR, the CIPR is a voluntary organization with a small executive. It's reliant on the strength of its network. Every so often, I believe organizations like that need a disruptive force to come in and shake things up a bit. And I've told this story many times. I came in on a wave of anger. the organization was failing to recognize the opportunity for social media in fact I was amongst a number of practitioners who called out the director general at the time when he said you know social media was an egotistical form of media it would quickly burn out long live traditional media uh, and it was just clearly nonsense the the amount and just understanding public behavior at the time everyone was getting a mobile phone was starting the journey we now know is as our relationship with our mobile phones and you could just see see what was happening and and so I said you got that wrong I said it very publicly I blogged actually and the response from the CIPR at the time was you know either shut up or come and help us fix it and then so I helped I, I joined the CIPR in 2012 and helped them you know help form Social media panel, and just got an energy behind the work that we were doing to the point that I got yeah I got elected as president in 2014 and 2014 I sought to reconnect the organisation with its charter principles. It, it just Lost its way a little bit. So the organization received a royal charter as part of the royal charter is able to award this accreditation to practitioners. It had had in 2014, it got the royal charter, I think in 2004, although I need to check that. But in 10 years, there were less than 50 chartered practitioners, and clearly something was wrong, right, in a market of 90,000 people. So we modernized that charter status and in doing so you know made it more accessible created the, the path to, to charter that, that now exists to the point that there are now hundreds there should be hundreds but you know we're, we're getting more and more people on that ladder to chartered qualification which is really important chartered accreditation so brilliant
0: brilliant so i'm curious about how many kids out there who would say they would like to be a public relations practitioner when confronted with the question about a career choice I don't think there are many, and I reason that it's because we may not be telling our stories enough. We've told the stories about other professions such that it has endeared kids to those kind of professions. Do you feel like that is the case? And if so, what is the CIPR doing to ensure that the profession is appealing to younger people?
1: You'll have to say, I've d- I no longer hold a role within the CIPR. I've certainly got views, though. This relates to where we started this conversation that unless public relations is recognized as a valuable discipline, either a practice or professional craft, it isn't going to in- a- attract individuals into it. It is a very young profession for all the reasons that we've described. And no, it isn't, you know, it's not necessarily recognized as, you know, being a, a potential career path. And I think it's all these things that are interlinked that we need to do a better job at our own route towards professionalism. We need to do a better job at telling our story as part of that. And I think it's one of those things that, you know, like so many of the, these things, I thought back in you know, 2014, I uh, came into the CLPR as a, what I thought was a bit of a re- revolutionary, hoping to tear it up and, and bring around change. What I've realized since then is these things take time, take a lot of time. And, you know, it's, it's evolution that's required, not revolution.
0: Interesting. I feel like the public relations profession, it's a place where people cross over from mainstream journalism. We have a lot of people who are either staff writers or reporters now practicing in the profession. Is that a concern?
1: I think you're correct. I think, you know, most people fall into it rather than choosing it as a deliberate career path like you're clearly doing. By my own admission, fell into it myself. I didn't know. So so I trained as an engineer and I worked as a consulting engineer and was followed, to be fair i was following my own path of conversion for, to to become a chartered engineer that i talked about you know that i mentioned that other professions do there's a recognised process as a an engineering student how you are going to practice and become a chartered engineer uh, and i'd started to follow that process and i got on one particular job which was commissioning a traffic light system on an industrial in an industrial location and working day in day out through the night i just absolutely hated it and so started to look around at you know what else i could do because then realizing that engineering wasn't for
0: me Okay, since you've already touched on that, I was just wondering what was the attraction? I saw that you studied engineering at Salford University. I-, I was supposed to be studying there at the moment, uh, but for the discount that Liz Beckett offered me, I had to <laughs> dump them. <laughs> now you're doing your thing with Watts Inc. What's this new face like for you?
1: So what think was started out of the opportunity that I spotted in the middle of last year with the huge energy, well, turmoil that was happening within public relations agencies. So there's sort of bit, a couple of levers. So first thing is individuals who'd maybe worked, you know, in large agencies, but for some time were either made redundant or they decided because they had a period of three to six months working at home, they decided to change their priorities. And so these things aligned. Uh, there's also, you know, coming out of the profession, sorry, coming out of COVID, there's been a real focus on public engagement, on healthcare, on ESG in the very broadest sense, so environment, uh, social and governance. There's also this huge need from the market and spotted just, uh, it, it, sorted as, it started as a blog post. There was a, maybe a, an agency a month starting and then very quickly it became one a week and before too long, you couldn't be, but that's, you know, it's just an opportunity as a middle-aged white man. Where could I best apply my skills? Again, I've, I've always felt compelled to, get out of the way of the next generation and not overstay my welcome in any, any role. I felt that really strongly in, in the agencies that I've founded and the jobs that I've had. But clearly, I've got a set of skills through my practice and also education that can help organisations that are maybe right at the start of their journey by providing a bit of that you know, wisdom and grey hair or no hair in my case.
0: <laughs> Interesting. you've you've got your hands full there i must say
1: time honestly you know i say this to students the, the last 12 months has been really really challenging if you're a student graduating looking to get a job in practice because you know so many employers have just stopped recruiting that's starting to change now as we can see a way out with the vaccine back into some sort of hybrid situation with offices but you know a lot of organizations have just been thought it would be too challenging to onboard people in a remote environment. There's so much of what we do that's implicit, requires a lot of touch touch points and contact, and to do it remotely is is tough, is really tough. So, you know, inevitably, that's created a real challenge for anyone looking to start out in practice, but also it means that there's going to be a massive, (laughs) massive wave of recruitment coming. Because it has to be, because the situation just is not sustainable.
0: And yeah, you've had this Watson conference running for a while now. What was the idea behind it? So
1: one of the things I did at the start of COVID was create a community on Facebook. We lost that social cohesion, social connection that quickly became replaced by online connection. And I built a community on Facebook of, you know, and initially I invited people I've worked with and friends to join it. And that's grown over the 12 months to be about 2000 people in it now. And that is intended, I want to tell you what it's become. It's become the conversation that you have with people about gossip, about news, about information, about sharing. And, you know, it's a really noisy, vibrant place and I absolutely love it. I asked a question in the community back in January, December, actually, as we merged, we went into the second lockdown or third lockdown, depending on where you are in the UK, and and said, you know, what what can we do to support each other? And lots of ideas were kicked about. But this idea of creating some sort of physical vir- physical virtual event where, you know, some of the stories that were shared in the community could be pulled out and were emerged. And it started as a non-conference. An non-conference, you know, you turn up and people pitch on the day to speak. And that didn't work too well uh, in a virtual environment. So we added a little bit of structure where... You know, people pitched, I curate the speakers, you present for five minutes, and then there's a Q&A with the, the audience. And, you know, we t- it takes place every Friday at the end of every month for an hour, and it's just become a really vibrant busy thing you know it's a lot of fun very high energy because of the pace of it you know i thought there's so many so many events and conferences and so much teaching has just gone from the classroom and we've stuck it in front of zoom and it doesn't work well and i thought if you cram four subjects within an hour it gives it a pace it gives it an energy and yeah it just works it really works i hope you have come oh, along and speak oh well. to session. i'm booking sessions for june now Come and do a session. Oh, wow. That's interesting. <laughs> Thank you, challenge. Right. I'm going to hold you. So, so the other thing I'm trying to do, the other thing I'm trying to do with that is bring out a diverse range of voices. You know, I got challenged very early on not to make it the same old people who turn up at every conference and event, but to tease out the stories from within the community. Well, I'm trying to bring out a mix of voices from all levels of the
0: profession. So we are gradually coming to the end of this conversation. What would be your advice to young people just leaving school and trying to cut their teeth in the public relations profession?
1: You challenge me on that the aspect of our profession, which is craft. And I think you can never escape being a good at your craft absolute fundamental I spend a lot of time honing my personal skills and I'd suggest that you know find your media that works for you particularly and lean into that heavily and clearly you're doing that with with audio not only the quality of the conversations that you're having but also the way that you produce content I I just think it's brilliant you know my thing's writing so I've, I've always written uh, a lot on my blog. So create quality content. The second thing is n- network. You know, you're doing that by making connections through your podcast, but then do it through LinkedIn, also do it through Twitter. And, you know, it's astonishing the conversations you can have and real cut through you can get on a network like Twitter. Even now, you know, the network is nearly 15 years old. But if you literally just follow a bunch of people in the industry, listen to them in the first instance, don't do anything else. But then over time, gain the confidence and, you know, you learn to know what they're like, you know, just just engage with the odd tweet and you'll quickly, quickly build a relationship. Uh, And that's a great thing. It's a really great thing. It's truly, truly democratizing.
0: Those were really useful insights. Thank you very much. Okay, so I'm going to ask you quite a personal question now as we wrap up. What have you learned about yourself during this lockdown?
1: So so I've always travelled, travelled a lot for work. Typically, we live in the northeast of England in Newcastle, do a lot of my work in London. And I've travelled week in, week out. So obviously I haven't been able to do that during lockdown. So I've spent more time than ever before with family and with my wife. And, um, you know, it's been challenging at times. Our relationship has has actually taken on a depth and a quality that just wasn't there before so there's that I really actually wrote going into lockdown and I, um, I've said writing's my thing but I wrote a series of letters one a week just about the experience of lockdown I was just trying to capture socially what was going on at the time socially and professionally what was going on uh, and I haven't been back to look at those but I, I will do at some point and, and tease out what I've learned
0: Yeah. That's interesting. I'm sure that's going to make for a really good publication. Maybe some sort of memoirs from your lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. Is there anything you really look forward to doing as soon as... The lockdown is eased finally, or perhaps you've done that already. Now that we have some significant ease of restrictions, I
1: miss—I really miss the energy in a room when you bring together a bunch of people to have discussion to have a a discussion. So you know, it's great that you know we've been able to use this time to build relationships with people, and people have generally been available. And if you make a thoughtful approach by email or or DM, you'll generally get a meeting. And, And so there's been an accessibility which we didn't have before, which is great. I mean, you and I having this conversation as an example. You send me a thoughtful email and we and jump on a call and, you know, it's great. So that's been wonderful. What What's really been missing is the room where you have people yeah. in the room, you have serendipitous yeah. moments and, you know, moments of creativity. I really miss those. So I look forward to big events. I actually wonder whether I make what's called a live event at some point because, mm. you know, there's a community around that now. Of well, commu- the, the, the Facebook group's got 2,000 people in it. There's regularly 200 people turn up on a Friday. So, yeah, I wonder whether that'll become a physical event. Maybe that's my legacy from COVID. Okay.
0: Yeah, we'll see how that goes. I mean, over the weekend, I and my flatmates went for a skydive. (laughs) That's the scariest thing. You did that (laughs) this weekend? I did that, uh, yeah, on Friday at Um Hibberstow. Scary, but interesting, you know. I mean, I'm excited I finally got to do it. 15,000 feet above the ground, we jumped off a plane. <laughs> 15,000 feet. How long does it take? Uh, Just slightly over a minute. The free fall is usually very, very fast. You know, like from 15,000, we got to 6,000 feet, say within 30 seconds. Then the parachute is deployed, and then uh, we just slowly come down, you know. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. You're a skydiver. Yeah, (laughs) but anyway, anyway, yeah, I I hope that um, we don't go into another lockdown again and then we can meet. Like you said, it's been a good time to meet with people, perhaps break those early interaction frights or inhibitions that people could have. That, these virtual interactions, I think kind of helps with. But of course, I don't think it's a replacement for the physical interaction, especially for public relations people, you know, like you and myself Mm. in the making. (laughs) So thank you very much, Stephen. It's been such an interesting and profound conversation with you. Hopefully, those points that you've made as regards professionalizing the PR industry I think a whole lot of people are hearing you've been leading this advocacy for quite a while. It will lead to some positive gains. We'll be able to stand our own alongside other notable professions, you know, like medicine, the law, accounting. Mm. And it's, it will also be attractive to young people and bringing that energy and zest and creativity that I think is associated with the young people.
1: <laughs> well, I'm passing <laughs> the bat on to you.
0: You know that right here on Moments That Matter with Martin, the conversations don't stop. So join in on the next episode. Thank you very much. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Easy Martinez, Easy with a Z, and let's keep talking because it matters too.